So tonight I'd like to read to you one of the recently translated, unpublished um, Pitts Instructions from the Dzogchen, the Secret Oral Teachings. It's by the first Jamgun Kanchul Rinpoche, who lived a hundred years ago in Tibet, who founded the non-sectarian practice movement in Tibet and revived Tibetan Buddhism when it had fallen into quite a bit of sectarianism and doctrinal dispute. And this clearly explains, I think, the basic practice of Dzogchen, of awareness, of Rigpa, Rigpa being non-dual awareness or pure presence, the unfabricated original nature of the mind, the heart-mind, and use that as a jumping-off point to go further into the discussion of how we practice this and what are the signposts or guidelines along the way. This is called the view in meditation, the outlook in meditation of Dzogchen, the innate great perfection, or the natural great wholeness by Jamgun Control. <coughs> Homage to the enlightened teacher. The view, the renowned view and meditation of Dzogchen can be explained in so many different ways. But simply sustaining the essence of present awareness includes them all. The primordial nature of your own mind won't be found elsewhere. It is the nature of this very momentary thought. Simply sustain awareness recognizing the nature of every momentary arising. Don't chase after thoughts and develop them into proliferating chains of thinking. Rather, regard nakedly their luminous, open essence. Then there is no duality, no observer, and nothing observed. Simply a clear, open awareness. This awareness, this presence, is empty. It is not a concrete entity. Yet it is cognizant, lucid, aware by itself, without your effort or contrivance. These two are inseparable, empty openness and lucid clarity. This is called the primordial clear light, the original nature of your own heart and mind. Do not overlook it. This magical display reveals your own nature. Its empty lucidity manifests as innumerable forms. Without being deceived by these momentary appearances or forms, recognize this innate nature and recognize everything proceeding from it as nothing but miraculous dreamlike display. Nothing whatsoever, yet everything is miraculously experienced. Imaho, far out, <laughs> simply recognize this unique, 
unadulterated original nature and abide thus open, clear, and luminous. With constant, unwavering mindfulness, sustain this recognition of the lucid, open nature of everything. Cultivate nothing else, neither states of mind nor meditative experiences. Let this innate wakefulness continue naturally, whether the mind moves or is still. Its nature is the same. Don't spoil this innate wakefulness by tampering with it, by manipulating it, by worrying about being right or wrong, by judging your meditations as good or bad. The ultimate luminosity of Dharmakaya, absolute truth, is nothing other than this unfabricated moment-by-moment mind. There are countless Dharma teachings in the 84,000 teachings of Buddha and innumerable commentaries and pith instructions in the Mahamudra and Dzogchen practice lineages. But the root of all practices is included here in simply sustaining the essence of present wakefulness. If you search elsewhere for something better, for a so-called Buddha superior to this present wakefulness, you will be chained by hope and fear. So give it up. Present wakefulness is the Buddha. Present wakefulness is the Dharma. Present wakefulness is peace, freedom. Conviction and perfecting all the accumulations of both merit and wisdom are the major supportive practices for completely realizing this teaching. Therefore, always apply your body, speech, and mind to that which is virtuous and wholesome. Sarva Mangalam. May all beings be happy. So here is, in a nutshell, the entire teaching in one or two words, one phrase, sustaining the essence of present wakefulness. How simple how clear and profound, yet not easy, is it? Anyway, who says it should be easy? It's doable. That's the good news. It's possible. We are actually doing it now and then, in and out. (laughs) That's a lot. Even one moment is enough. One moment of clarity dispels aeons of darkness. As it says in the Manjusri Namasamgiti Tantra, one moment makes all the difference. One moment of total awareness is one moment of perfect freedom and enlightenment. One moment makes all the difference. 
this moment makes all the difference and what we do with it it's not just a matter of building up to something investing enough hours in spiritual investment plan until we our bonds ripen and we get enlightenment coupons <laughs> it's not that material one moment is enough it's this moment or never realization is now or never as always every single moment so when we're practicing here I exhort you to attend totally to the present moment to find refuge in that and not in the past or the future as we say in Dzogchen let the past go past thoughts, memories, whatever, history let the past go which is already dead and gone anyway and don't invite the future which has not yet come and as for the present where can we find that without past and future so Dzogchen calls the pre- this the timeless time the fourth time it's beyond past, present and future without past and future how can you even discuss the present when one is just present there is no one present there is no present at all it's the timeless time in, in Tibet we call it the f- it gets an honorific so we call it the sacred fourth it's the fourth it's that moment of fresh creation it's like the world has just been born that's every moment but we miss it and we fall into the the corpse of time and space that's already rotting in its place but if we live totally fresh in this present wakefulness before even concepts have labeled or noted anything that's like the dewdrop shining on the first moment of this cosmos that is the beginning and the end of everything it's timeless it's the eternal now that the mystics speak of so when we're practicing this present awareness this natural presence whatever you want to call it this openness and awareness practice let's not go too far into the construction business building up meditative states getting more concentrated judging our meditation let's settle back a little that's why we lean back and relax and open everything so we don't have this feeling of driving forward like we're on a train on a track trying to get somewhere but settle back in the groundless ground of pure being and let the shining dewdrop reveal itself this miraculous moment this timeless moment then awareness is totally unbounded unconditioned nothing has happened yet it hasn't descended into relativism into dualism into cause and effect Kalashas have not yet seen the light of day conditioning doesn't obtain it's like the space before the sky before the weather the deep space 
weather and sky evolve in deep space, but space is first and primary. And will outlast it all, all forms of weather and even the blue sky of this planet's atmosphere. And our immutable original nature is like that, deep space. So let's look into this awareness. Let's trace the source of the radiance, all the six sense experiences, all the physical and, and mental experiences. Trace it back to the source. That's why we look into who's who around here. Try to get upstream a little bit and see before concept, before we've decided who we think we are. Like if we shout, <laughs> then before we think again, who or what is it? And if we shout ourselves, maybe we can surprise ourselves enough <laughs> to short circuit our discursive mind and see what else might be there between thought, before thought, even in the middle of thought. Hope I didn't scare anybody. <laughs> I always pray before I do that that nobody will have a heart attack. <laughs> we haven't had any this year. Anyway, even if we lose a few, maybe one person will get enlightened. And <laughs> But let's forget about enlightenment. There's too much talk about that anyway. That's one of our greatest obstacles, actually. Enlightenment is just another concept. It's not what we think it is. So this practice that we're doing here is very simple. Maybe too simple for our own psychological complexities but it's very simple, yet utterly profound and clear. Are we willing to do it, or do we keep adding in other things because it's too naked? Always have to do something, you know? Don't just sit there, do something, as my grandmother always used to tell me. <laughs> you know, idle hands do the devil's work and all that. <laughs> That's why we Tibetan Buddhists, we always have a rosary, even one in each hand, to keep us busy. But are we willing to really let go of all of this compulsive doing and experience the incredible lightness and wholeness of just being? Even for one moment, that would be not sufficient. That would be radically transformative. That would undo, in a moment, all the tangled spider webs of our own creation. Even the Buddha, you know, he spent many years doing austerities and he finally gave up on that when he almost died and he found the middle way between too tight and too loose. He gave up his austerities. And the other, the five other yogis, sadhus that he lived with, who were on the path of austerity with him, they, gave, they, got, they got sick of him. They thought he was indulging himself because he had a bowl of yogurt. <laughs> <laughs> and they left him and with disgust. <laughs> and then he was just sitting around under a, boat, a tree looking at the dawn. And when the morning star arose, awoke, so did he. 
sort of by mistake, by accident, because he was no longer trying so hard, and he opened, and everything ripened, and he perceived things as they are, instead of trying so hard to force something to happen. So this is a very important teaching for us, even in the life of the Buddha, who was a good role model for many. That was the became the teaching called the Middle Way. It's like tuning the guitar strings, not too tight, not too loose. I just looking to see if my book is here so I can read something, but I just have to remember it. The female, the matriarch of the Chud lineage, the, the cutting lineage, Machig Labdrun, sang, not too tight and not too loose. Loosen loosely and let go completely and enjoy the natural state. You know, don't just loosen very tightly. Also, you, know, you can try to force yourself to relax and go around the whole campus here looking for the best place to sit and to relax. Spend the whole day looking for the best place. <laughs> relax is not our next chore that we have to force. I mean, let's relax that too, that, that compulsion. Loosen loosely. You know, we always hear let go, let go, you know, it's like the new mantra. How about let it hang on for a moment, it'll go, everything goes, let it hang. Or even more radically, hang on as much as you can and see what happens. How long can you hang on to anything? See what happens. Then it'll really go. Everything goes anyway. So it's a fine balance here. This is very dynamic non-doing, this non-meditation of Dzogchen, the innate consummate wholeness. Another translation of the word Mahati in Sanskrit. The consummate wholeness. It's, excuse me, it's the positive side of emptiness, dukkha, suffering, dukkha, impermanence, not-self, it's the positive side, the wholeness, the innate completeness, the luminosity, like nirvana. The Buddha said, this isn't something the crazy Tibetans made up, you know, because too much altitude up there. <laughs> and the Buddha said, he said in the sutras, I found something tranquil, luminous, uncreated. Peace. There was one more, something like simple. You know, it's luminous. It's not just dark. It's the luminous womb of emptiness. As it says in the Surangama Sutra, shimmering, effulgent void. That means luminous, overflowing, shining void, giving birth to everything. It's not just nothing. It's everything, also. It's only our dualistic intellect that always has to decide. It's either this or that. It's either nothing, 
or everything, or it's either good or bad. Can we hold both at the same time? How much tolerance do we have for ambiguity and paradox? That's where Buddhist logic comes in. Neither existence nor non-existence, both and neither, not just good and bad, good or bad, one or the other. Samsara and Nirvana, says in the Mahayana Sutras, are inseparable. Not just we have to get from Samsara to Nirvana, the other shore of Nirvana. They are inseparable. The sacred and the profane are interwoven. Warp and woof, as in the word Tantra I explained the other night, inseparable. A single fabric, one weave. Form and emptiness. Emptiness is form also. One single inseparability, including us. We're part of that. The Dzogchen Patriarch Longchenpa, you can read many of his books, Kindly Bentees Us and other translated books. He said, Fools who despise samsara and long for nirvana will never find peace. Fools who despise samsara and long for nirvana will never find peace. Of course, in the beginning, it's good when we realize things are dissatisfying. We're dissatisfied. No matter what we get, we're never satisfied. And we look for something else. But we have to deepen and mature in the spiritual way and realize it's not the other shore is on the other, so far away from here. We may feel far from it, but it's never far from us, rest assured. So in this practice, it's actually actualizing or embodying these principles that we can actually settle into this consummate wholeness, this innate perfection and completeness, and be connected and whole without having to build, to change everything, change ourselves totally. This is not a path of transformation, Zogen. It's a path of self-liberation, inherent freedom, and perfection. Oh, the wisdom of allowing things to be as they are. It's a very important principle here. It's not just slaying the kalashas, slaying the ego, you know, on the spiritual battlefield, like in the Bhagavad Gita. That's fine. That's a very feudal, martial, ancient, patriarchal description. How about nurturing the positive, softening and dissolving, warming up a little, opening the heart, nurturing the positive, the innate goodness that is at our heart. Nurturing, not just slaying and overcoming and defeating the poisons of the enemies of the negativities. How about nurturing the positive? and allowing that to emerge when the battle, there's less battling and struggling going on. <laughs> After two, three-year retreats in France, 
I talked to my teacher, one of my teachers, Tukupay Mwangyal Rinpoche, who speaks English and lives there. A really wonderful Tibetan Lama and one of my best friends and mentors. And he gave me some really excellent advice. And it wasn't in Sanskrit or Buddhist terminology. He said, Surya, don't expect the struggle to end. That was very liberating for me. Let's not be too idealistic and think that peace or nirvana is just bland like cream cheese. It's much more rich and smelly than that. <laughs> and genuine. Hearty and gutsy and intimate and immediate. Because it's been around a long time. It smells. It's more like blue cheese. So as we practice here, don't be deceived by the simplicity of it all. Even if we're, you know, we do a little chanting here and a little chanting there, here a chant, there a chant, everywhere a chant, chant. <laughs> but that's not what's the main event here. That's just, you know, so the managers think we're having a Buddhist retreat. <laughs> but, you know, take refuge, do a bodhicitta, chant a Tara Buddha, whatever. But just this resting in the innate wakefulness, in the natural awareness, is the main practice. As Jamgun Kanchal Rinpoche says, and he's an authority for all the sects of Tibetan Buddhism, he's not the kind of person that didn't know any other practice. He held all the lineages and knew all the practices. He's famous for saying he had... A, many people ask me, do they need a teacher? Or they say, they don't have a root guru. Maybe you've heard these words in Tibetan Buddhism. You have to have a root lama. He had 135 root lamas. <laughs> he was a busy guy. <laughs> but you heard what he said. There's only one simple practice at the heart of all of that multiplicity. I think some of my Kagyu friends came, they're hiding in the back there. So I read another thing but from this book by the Karmapa, if I can find it. called A Single Word of Heart's Advice by the third Karmapa, Rangjung Dorje. And in case you don't know, in, in case the word Karmapa doesn't just make your hair stand on end, then I just tell you that this Karmapa was famous as the most enlightened Lama of the Middle Ages in Tibet. And he's the head of the Black Hat sect. And he was the guru brother of the Longchenpa Lama that I just mentioned. So if you know who those people are, you understand, and if you don't, just think of he. They consider him an omniscient lama, enlightened lama. So this is what he passed down the oral lineage. It was just translated. It's never been published. This is an unpublished book that they made up in Nepal that you can't find in bookstores. The single word of hard advice by Karmapa Rangjung Dorje, the self-arisen diamond. That's his name. Homage to all the sacred masters of the lineage. So when we talk about empowerment and initiation, just listen to this as if you're receiving empowerment from this karmapa. 
He's empowering your mind with the Buddha mind. And when you know that nothing needs to be transmitted, then that is real transmission. Amish to all the enlightened masters. The enlightened mind of all the Buddhas of the past, present, and future, that which all the holy yogis aspire to realize, that which is widely renowned as the Dharmakaya, Mahamudra, Dzogchen, Enlightenment, Tathagatagarbha, is precisely your own mind which thinks of this and that. Now, isn't that a big pill to swallow? Anyway, excuse me, I should just read this. That enlightened mind, that Dharmakaya, Mahamudra, is precisely your own mind which thinks of this and that. All the phenomena of samsara and nirvana arise nowhere else but within this unique awareness. This unique awareness is the essence of all the sutras, tantras, and pitakas, that means commentaries. When you put this unique awareness into practice, there is nothing to be meditated upon whatsoever, and no one to meditate. Simply explained, this unique and marvelous innate awareness rests vividly awake in its natural place. You don't need to worry or think, is this really Mahamudra? Mahamudra, Dzogchen, whatever the hell you call it. Don't ever hope for improvement or fear degeneration. Who among us can, can do anything without hope, expectation, and fear, anxiety, that we might fail or we might miss something? You know, you're sitting out in the garden after lunch or... You know, I told you, well, you don't have to follow the schedule or you won't miss anything if you don't come here, but you might be totally one with that, the universe. And then you look at your watch and you realize it's 2.35 <laughs> and you might be missing something because Surya is here doing a guided meditation and what happens to your one with the universe? You run here, afraid you're going to come in late, et cetera and so on. Don't, this is the Karmapa talking 500 years ago. He already foresaw, he saw us coming. <laughs> he saw us coming. He says, don't ever hope for improvement or fear degeneration. Why chase such transient concepts? Just rest loosely in this vividly awake innate awareness. Relax loosely and rest. Besides this, you don't need anything to meditate on. It's hard to meditate if there's no object, but we're learning that here. By practicing in this way again and again, at some point you will actually recognize the luminous essence of all appearances, including thoughts. When that happens, realization blossoms spontaneously. Spontaneously untied are all attachments and habitual patterns and all unwholesome 
activities will be spontaneously relinquished. This is called Buddhahood. This is what is meant when we say, one moment makes the difference. In one moment, complete enlightenment. See, Karmapa is quoting Surya Das. No. (laughs) We all say the same thing because there's nothing else to say. Present moment, only moment. Everybody knows that. But how hard to abide by that. So, just to reiterate, Karmapa, third Karmapa says, this is called Buddhahood. This is what is meant when we say, one moment makes the difference, in one moment, complete enlightenment. This doesn't mean later, after three kalpa, aeons, of meditating. So I'm just reading this, it translates from Tibetan. I swear there is not a more profound, final, ultimate instruction found anywhere from all the sacred and accomplished holy masters other than this single word of my heart's advice. Don't squander and overlook this. If you do, you won't be able to receive these blessings from within. There is no mistake in this. Simply rely on this blessed innate awareness. And he says this was written by the self-sprung Vajra and retreat at such and such a Yangon hermitage, Sarvamangalam. So, if you ever wonder why we are so devoted to these teachers and teachings, it's because it's very difficult to hear words like that, isn't it, in the vast, all the Buddhist books and sutras. This is the father, the parent, giving us his advice and swearing to us that he's looked at, he spent his whole life and many lifetimes also with the Karmapas probably, checking it out for us. And this, he's swearing to us that this is the key. This is the skeleton key that unlocks all the doors. We don't have to have a huge key ring with 10 billion keys on it. This unique awareness, innate awareness, is the key. That's why it's called in the Dzogchen Tantra, the Buddha in the palm of our hand. It's up to us to use it. That's the key. Any questions, please, tonight? Yeah? I'd like to know how to practice awareness in our dreams. Awareness in our dreams. Yeah. Well, we've been practicing awareness here in our uh, daydreams. <laughs> so now we've got that down. Now how do we carry it into our night dreams and do lucid dreaming or dream yoga, as we call it, Milam Naljur, or Bardo practice. Actually, this is pretty, you can read about this in Sogyal Rinpoche's book and a little bit in Namkai Norbu's book, Dream Yoga in the Clear Light or something, but you can't really get these kind of teachings clear from books. Um, if we look into this awareness, we get used to this, we can actually awaken in our dreams and know, not awake, we can still be asleep, but sort of awaken, become aware in our dreams that we're dreaming, that we're asleep. Anybody had that experience? Mm-hmm. I'm sure you have, most, most of us have, effortlessly, because awareness is always functioning anyway, with or without our meditation, you know, groups. Um, you wake up in a dream, it's called in, in, in psychology, in English, lucid dreaming, 
There's a book about it by Stéphane Leberge, it's an expert in the subject. There are many techniques to awaken in our dreams. You know, Don Juan's guru, the Yaqui Indian, sorry, Carlos Castaneda's guru, Don Juan, the Yaqui Bodhisattva type guy, sorcerer, said, told Carlos to try to find his hands in his dreams. That was like, you know, some reference point to help him wake up. So we have many little techniques for that. Beginning with, as we're going to sleep, you know, rather than diving into oblivion as fast as we can, pulling a pillow over our heads and hoping not to wake up to the last possible moment in the morning, you know, with the five-minute button on the clock, trying to stay submerged as long as possible, take another tack. <laughs> Just try it. We meditate ourselves to sleep. You know, maybe you won't fall asleep so soon, but it doesn't matter, you'll be resting. Meditate, go into the light, do sky gazing, you know, with our eyes open on the ceiling or whatever, or close our eyes, you know, sky gazing, or looking into the light, let go of the senses and the body and everything unfolding just into the luminosity of awareness. And you might even find your conscious as you fall asleep and go through those stages and right into dream. There's actually a lot of light there, and then the hypnagogic images start to come when you're falling asleep. You might recognize them, not just lose consciousness, but you know, just images in the mind starting to fantasize you're falling asleep. And then you, when you, you might wake up and know you're dreaming, or look to your hands or your feet or your footsteps, or there are different techniques in the dream, the dream yoga. We also chant as we're going to sleep, like a, a four-line verse, everything is like a dream, for the sake of all awakening from the dream, may I awaken in the dream. So you start to make some sounds that make echoes later in your mind. May I awaken in the dream. We create some causes that have some effects that carry over, and even in our unconscious and subconscious, to spur a little bit of conscious awareness in the dream sleep and in the dream. And I think it's very powerful. And then we can awaken in, in the dream and play with it a little more. Instead of being at the mercy of the dream, unconscious, you know, out of control, we can be conscious in the dream, play with it, and the reality is totally plastic then. You can fly, you can do anything. Then you start to get used to being the master of appearances rather than the victim, the subject to appearances. And as we master that in the dream state, where things are much more diaphanous and fluid, unreal, then we can start to wake up in the daydream also, and know things are diaphanous and unreal, and be more the master of appearances, rather than at the, the victim of circumstances and appearances. So it directly translates into the awakening, enlightening practice that we do in our day. Usually we hear about the bardo, the intermediate stage after death, but it, we also say that the dream is a bardo, it's an intermediate state, that this is an intermediate state, you know, after birth, before death, like our life is a bardo, a passage. So it's the same, similar principles apply, being master rather than the victim.
being free, proactive, spontaneous, rather than reactive, conditioned, and so on. These very powerful teaching you can really get a lot out of if you go into them. In Tibetan Buddhism, it's usually called the Dream Yoga. It's part of the six yogas of Naropa and has some different chapters like the illusory body and different practices. The illusory body, the clear light, things like that. All in the context of awakening within the dream. Because this too is like a dream. Moving along chronologically, in the mornings I find it very difficult to meditate. I I seem to get, you know, I wake up and any sense of inner connection is very hard to find. And uh, thinking, well, you can do well you know it's like um, breakfast imminent in my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wonder if you have any little tips that would be for helping morning meditation. I drink coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I never used to drink coffee, but since I was about 35, I, like, I have to kickstart the motor. <laughs> so it doesn't matter if it's 4 o'clock or 8 o'clock in the morning, the coffee will do it. <laughs> But in in the practice tradition, (laughs) well, first of all, of course, the yogis don't lie down at night. They sleep sitting up, so that's already gives you a head start, if you you can ever get used to it. But we we sit up and go, (sighs) and one great sky breath, and exhale all the stale prana energy and in everything and sky gaze and kind of brighten and sort of clear out all the cobwebs with a big ah like a lion roaring it says in the text <laughs> and that you know that, that kind of wakes you up and makes you laugh a little also at yourself so it's very refreshing and brightening but you know one could also do some activity or breathing or yoga or showering or anything to get going how long does it take you to get going? You mean like until noon or? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, who knows? Um, maybe you have low sugar, blood sugar, or any kind of thing. You can check these things out too. But everybody has different cycles. You know, some people seem to be night owls, and some people are really early rot people, early morning people. I would definitely say, you know, you want to get something going. Don't be paralyzed by the notion there's nothing to do. It should all be effortless. You know, you might do some breathing or moving or take a shower. You don't have to just kind of sit up and try to meditate and then you just lean against the wall and just sleep for another half hour. You can wake yourself up before you practice wakefulness. Roger?
used to break down the solidity for bodies of external phenomena? Well, there's a lot of fancy practices and all kinds of things, but just basically, we could say in the context of what we're doing here, like this cutting through practice, in the in the meditation session, seeing through everything without being moved by it. No matter what happens, we're not moved. We don't get involved. That's seeing through. That's like the seeing. You know, that's like recognizing the empty part. You know, seeing through the, the glass like a window. And then in post meditation, seeing everything like in a mirror, just like reflections, like a dream, and playing with it freely. <clears throat> really uninhibitedly, not trying to weed out this is good and this isn't, and you know, avoid this and get more of that. So there's the balance there between the empty side and sort of the luminous or the uninhibited, um, the responsive side, you know, form and emptiness or whatever. So you actually work both ends of it. So you don't recoil in post meditation, you don't withdraw, and in meditation you don't get involved. So then you start to see that you know everything comes and goes, and, and both sides, it's not yours, and it's not what you think it is, and you can make it into anything. You know, it's not what we think it is. What we make of it makes all the difference. Well, that's why I said there are a lot of fancy things. Then you you know obviously if you get more into the path of tantra t- transformation, then when you start to visualize things, then you realize. You know, you could be Tara. I mean, who says you're? Who says you're just a British male? Maybe you're Tara. Maybe you have. You know, maybe you're a thousand bodhisattvas. Why? You know, who, why be stuck with this and this way of dressing, moving, thinking, and being? So you start to loosen that up. Your self-representation. You know, you could be. You, know, you visualize yourself as a deity, radiating light, radiating compassion, doing all these enlightened activities, and you start to get used to that, then you realize, and then you dissolve that visualization, then you realize this too is just like a visualization, our self-concept that we're holding, our self-representation, we're visualizing ourselves as we, you know, it's like we took a snapshot of ourselves at some point in our development, and now we're living it out, although it's not like that exactly, if it ever was. So visualization, again, it puts us at the source of the awareness play rather than at the effect of it. Like, you know, we feel stuck with our conditioning. You know, like, oh, I'm just a small woman. What can I do? You know, there'll never be a woman, I don't know, president. I mean, fortunately, you had a, a woman um, prime minister. But, you know, in America, the women, it's very difficult. So, you know, but why be stuck with that? You know, you have to be a man to be a Buddha, or whatever we think about ourselves. Who am I to, you know, do all that? That's for the Dalai Lama and Mother Teresa. I mean, who, who do they think they are? <laughs> Mother Teresa is a four-foot nun from Albania. <laughs> who does she think she is to do all that? And the Dalai Lama made up, him, invented himself too. No Dalai Lama or Buddhist monk has ever done this before. Of freedom and of, and of self-actualization. You realize we're visualizing ourselves now as we are. We, you know, it's by a self-concept. So it's very liberating then. And then you start to realize, you know, who's doing this? 
you know, there's self-inflicted these limitations. And then there are, you know, like I said, there's illusory body where you play with many bodies or... Like if you look in a mirror, you know, it could be a good meditation. You do sky gazing in your eyes, let's say, or whatever you do. But then, like, get another mirror and put it behind you. Then you start to see reflection, reflection. Suddenly you have three heads or four heads. If you're very clever, if you have enough, like you have a mirror with a corner, you can start to have five heads, ten heads, twenty heads. You know, it's like visualizing yourself as a twenty-headed um, Kala Chakra deity or something. That's Tibetan practice. So you can do it through mirrors. And then, you know, in the beginning you think, you know, I know what I'm doing. It's like when you go in the movies. You know you're going to movies and nothing's ha- really happening. But after a while, you might forget a little bit. You get very involved. So you do this with mirrors, and sometimes, you know, you can get lost in there, and then you try to come back out, and you think you're back at the first face, but you're still at the third face. It's very disorienting in an interesting way. When you move your eyebrows, and there's like a thousand eyebrows going like <laughs> that. And you kind of... It changes how you think about eyebrows and you. You know, or my, I'm just moving the little eyebrows, you know, but suddenly it's like a thousand seagulls and the whole mirror is shaking and it really changes. And then, you, and then you realize and you come back to yourself and you're just a little hard-boiled egg, you know, with only one head, two eyes, and it gives you a different perspective. So all of those, those tantric technologies, they're, they're outrageous and they, you know, they really get to the root of something. Sometimes I think it's like neuro-linguistic reprogramming. You know, how we think of ourselves defines so much of how we act. If you think of yourself as a couch potato, you veg out most of the time. But if you think of yourself as a healthy, you know, young, sporty type of person, maybe you play the sports on the weekend instead of just watching them on television. I don't know. I'm just thinking about this in, in Western terms. There are some principles here about reprogramming how we visualize and conceive of ourselves. So the illusory body yoga of the six yogas, the clear light yoga, where you realize everything is light or energy, you know, or empty, means not this concrete self-existence. It's very liberating. Then you're much more playful and, and proactive and creative instead of just reactive and conditioned and feel stuck with what you, you, know, you get. And your mantras and all the yoga movements and holding your breath. There's a lot of st- practices that really change your mind, at least temporarily. But it gives you, it aerates the claustrophobic cell that we usually live in. Any questions? Yes, Simon? I much enjoyed your talk, very much. But um, having heard you describe the Bayer as patriarchal and beautiful, could you suggest? No, I just said to him at the battlefield. At the battlefield? Allegory. Right. It's not just as a spiritual battlefield. How about this as a spiritual garden? That's what I was saying. Excellent. Yeah. But what what what, what, what right. you on about? <coughs> no, I wasn't talking about the Gita. Yeah. Well, it is totally, of course. That's another story. Of course, it's patriarchal.
same way I was saying, we don't have to conceive everything as a battlefield where we're, you know, we're like gladiators trying to subdue, you know, all this male Im- martial imagery, subduing the enemy, the kalashas, and slaying the ego, and all this. Again, I'll say, nur- ever nurturing the positive, and gently, and softening up, and settling back into being, rather than, we have to, now we have to get the right kind of doing, you know, we're going to, we're going to clear the whole universe of suffering like some kind of big snow plows. It's very male. How about let's get out of the way and let things go? <laughs> Who asked us to come and plow it all? Or steamroller it for that matter, flatten it all out? There's definitely a tendency of our ego to steamroll and you know also to, to to take the dharma and make the dharma use the dharma for its own uses you should be careful about that too i'm the best meditator i meditate longer than anybody else that's ego i've been to you know they bring out their medals and their resume how many 10-day Vipassana retreats you've been to, as if you should be proud of it. I say you should be in ba- ashamed <laughs> how many, if you still have to go back for more. <laughs> Werner Earhart, who was a wise guy if there ever was one, he said something very pithy in one's life. I remember he used to say, before I was different, now I'm the same. <laughs> Before I had to be different than everybody else. Now I'm just the same as everybody else. I like that. Why are we so afraid to just be ourselves? Accept ourselves as we are. Allow ourselves. Yeah, you could say it. But we're not, see, the way it's described is more like sustaining innate wakefulness, not watching thoughts. Watching sounds like the observer, the witness. You hear the difference? It's a subtle difference. That's why we, we, excuse me? I, I can't hear the difference in that. Between watching thoughts yeah. and simply sustaining present awareness? Yeah. Awareness aware, is just aware. It's not watching anything. What's it watching? Usually we think, see, but this is just thinking. Awareness must be aware of something. But who said it must be aware of something? Maybe it's just aware. See, even calling it awareness is too much, and it makes it complicated. You know, it's intellectual, conceptual. But how about... Just be present. And you say, who or what is present? It starts to sound extra. Just be present. That's not watching anything. I didn't ask you to watch anything. Just be present. As you already are. That's pure presence. That's not watching anything. 
you know, there's a lot of spiritual teachings about the witness. Just be the witness. Just witness what's going on. That's good. That's good for giving us some space and perspective and detachment. But that has to go too. Because there's no witness box, you know. We're not separate from what's going on, the crimes that are going on out there. <laughs> there's no witness box with a nice wood guardrail. And there's no witness in it. you're a Zen student, Peter, so I'll just drop this on you. You know the, the, the story of the donkey, the blind donkey? There's a blind donkey, and the donkey puts his head over the edge of the well. It's a blind donkey, don't forget. So the donkey, is the donkey looking at the well where its face is reflected, or is the well looking at the donkey, the blind donkey? See, the donkey's blind, so it can't really see the well. But the well seems to have showing a face. It looks like it's looking at the donkey. So who's looking at who, the subject or the object? This is where it breaks down, our usual way of thinking. So we think we are seeing something, but really it can't see itself. There's no witness watching the thoughts. It's awareness, aware of what's happening in awareness. That sounds complex, but this is just introducing the non-dual awareness before it's become subject and object and action, meditating on objects and subject-object and interaction. In Buddhist psychology, that's called the three wheels or the three spheres, and that's karma also, cause and effect. But actually, there's no separation. It's just awareness, aware. So if you want an object, the object in Dzogchen is awareness itself. So that's what we're looking into. That's why if you look at who or what is aware, it's like making the aware, trying to turn the mind back on itself to be aware of itself, not just the thought, but, you know, what, where is thought coming from, as I've asked you to look into. And you, you might see you know, thoughts, arising in emptiness or out of awareness or however you experience it. And it's very freeing of this separatist duality we're always involved in, self and other, I want, you know, I can get, I, it. So the object in Dzogchen is the awareness itself. If you want to talk about object. We don't really talk about object, particularly in the Dzogchen meditation. That's why it's called innate awareness or natural awareness. Not trying to meditate on something. That's why it's called also non-meditation. It's just looking into... We can just be and be present without objectifying anything. But that's quite subtle. It's easier said than done. Well, maybe I should say it's easier done than explained. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's up to you. Yes? Uh, in the walking meditation with your eyes, uh, with our eyes shut, um, that, was, that was very interesting because uh, it, it became very difficult to, to, to tr- even to try to focus on the awareness itself because, you know, 
your attention yeah. it goes outwards uh, and going backwards was, was even worse <laughs> <laughs> but maybe better oh better okay <laughs> meaning I'm trying to yeah. re, um, break your habit of right. what you think you're concentrating on right well what I and see what the awareness does naturally because when you're walking backwards there was enough danger there that whatever you think you're trying to pay attention to mm. it's attending to what's most important like Say that again? whatever you think you're trying to pay attention to right. your survival instinct is attending to what's most important and most present right, right then right. see it's not you don't have to do it it knows how to do it right well yeah well, yeah that's true but <laughs> what it made me think of that's that's how i go mm. through life yeah that's right We are going backwards through life. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we shouldn't hurry. <laughs> the more we hurry, the further away from it we get. <laughs> now, do you want to try again? Um, what are you really thinking here? Well, um, what I what it made me also think of was that you know the the attention in in life itself does seem to go or the awareness i'm not sure what goes often in a place where and i don't know where that is and yet some something in me knows right well that's what we're trying to introduce here that's why i said and i'll say it again your survival instinct knows what to attend to right. you don't always know right so even in life, you know, like you might feel you're scattered, right. but your awareness is totally there. It's just being used in some way to keep juggling all the balls or whatever it's doing. Right. Yeah. But um, when you want to stop juggling, you can. You're the juggler, after all. Right. So are we the master or are we the victim of all those balls? Well, very often I feel the victim. Right. But are you we really? Well, that, yeah, because what happens is I follow my thoughts. Shame on I you. Thought <laughs> <laughs> the thoughts are all the balls. But what if you just let all the balls crash? What happens to the juggler? What if you don't follow your thoughts? You're afraid they'll get lost? No, it's nothing like that. <laughs> <laughs> I often, okay, I often follow the thoughts, but. I know some. I'm, I'm. There's an awareness that is with the totality. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good. And uh, and it's very. I find it very difficult to stay with the I don't know, mm-hmm. rather than oh I know what's going on. Well, and when I think I know what's going on, which is the thought-led bit, that's when I. That's when when things kind of go awry. No, they go right or they go wrong. They go awry. They they go um. Okay. Go awry. Awry. Yeah, that's right. They it go wrong. Yeah. But uh, it, it seems like I trust that. I trust the way. It's very difficult to trust that for more than a moment, which comes by surprise. Right. I mean, here it's easy, <laughs> but there, in in daily life, we're walking backwards with the eyes. That's hard. Um. Well, if it's easy here, then why don't you 
try to expand here to include walking backwards, then maybe when you go out, it'll come a little more naturally. But you don't have to know. You don't have to see where you're going. You can trust, you know, what you're doing. Doesn't mean you drive with blindfold, but you know. Also, you know, you don't have to be that neurotic when you're driving. That you're, you're always looking at the, the map or something. You know, you just drive along, and you know you'll figure it out each time. There'll be signs. You'll figure it out. Just trust there also in not knowing. Just for example, you can go through life that way. You know. It's very difficult to stay with the not knowing. Actually, it's really more just like a flash. But if if we really, you know, if we can relate that once in a while, it sort of perforates the solidity, the weightiness of this illusion, of, the illusion of knowing. Mm. So we're not so invested in it that we really know. You know, I know you think you know where you're going from here, right? I don't know where you live, but you probably do. <laughs> there are a lot of stories about this, you know, as to whether you're really going to get there. Many teaching tales about this. You know, you thought you know that you were going to London, but you end up, I don't know, in the next life, or you know, I don't know, in jail, or I don't know, anywhere. So we think we know, but do we really? So it's hard, impossible to remember that always. But you know, coming back to that again and again, like cutting through again and again, starts to lighten our investment in the, in the knowing. Mm-hmm. You know, and we get a little more freedom from the known, as Krishnamurti likes to call it. So the known is not such an obscuration over our wonder, our sensitivity to just the freshness and the mystery of things. You know, like maybe we think we, you know, know what the weather's doing, but, you know, it's good weather, it's bad weather, but, you know, we don't know. And we don't even know if it's good or bad. Maybe sunny dries up all the crops, but rainy makes crops better. So what is good and bad? We don't know. It's one tiny little speck of the, the puzzle. Yes? Yeah. Um, it's obvious that you use humor as a teaching method, and effectively, uh, is this the way Tibetans generally deliver their <laughs> I don't know, since I'm not Tibetan, but we try to take it lightly. Yeah. <coughs> if you don't have a sense of humor, it just ain't funny. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to tell anyway, I do this on purpose, because I think we too often make this in spiritual life to a grim chore. Meditation or bust, you know, and all that. And you get too serious, and then on top of that, we're silent and monastic, and you know, there's no distractions here. And so, and, uh, your thesis are much like sort of like Enlightenment, uh, so. yeah. I mean, there's a joy in freedom and the Dharma, you know, and also the love of, of uh following the true way, you know, one's true vocation and way, it has to come out. This isn't, uh, you know, theology school or some really serious (laughs) pursuit here. Yes? Um, If I understand it rightly, you're sort of teetering a time of awareness and then unfolding gradually, second by second, so we're teetering on this bridge 
permanently. Yeah, exactly. Because it's connected, so it's not that far away. It's not that far. Some people can see what's going to happen longer away than that, for different ways. Another way of explaining this because it's all uh, simultaneous in some dimension, or, you know, there's no before and after, like, we talk about cause and effect, so it sounds like a train, you know, first there's cause, then there's effect, but also effects are causes and so on. It's all connected or simultaneous or mirrors reflecting mirrors, you know, it's all there in a way. If everything that shows up in the the conscious mind is insubstantial and insignificant, what's what's the point or the value of it other than as entertainment? Well, relatively insignificant, relatively no value. Why do we, I mean, why do we have it? Do do we do we have it? The picture show, all the all the stuff that's going on. Yeah. Yeah, but is there a we that you know? Do we have it? There's a lot more in that sentence besides it. Not just why is it, but you said why do we have it? Yeah. Why don't we have something else, or why don't we have nothing? But the we is also part of it. It's just happening. And the why is a very, you know, it's one of the questions the Buddha, there were 14 questions the Buddha wouldn't answer actually. <laughs> like, is, is there a God and why, you know, why did the universe come into being? The why questions are very slippery. <laughs> why don't we just see how we have it, which you can actually find, see, you know, how we relate to it and what it is. There are many answers, but they're all fallacious. Like, why do we have it? Because of delusion. Is that answer? Or because we're asleep. Because of duality, dualistic thinking. Yeah. So that's not, it's like saying, what is the meaning of life? You can't figure it out that way, but you can experience it by living. Truly. Peter? I'm still hooked on the Kayla's question about um, objects. Can you track me through this? You know, like, here I am, I'm sat. You didn't like the blind donkey story? No. <laughs> 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 okay. We'll explain it all very rationally. <laughs> so here I am, sat, sat think a thought thinking me, you know, like I'm, I'm lost in the thought, right? And suddenly, I realize I'm here, I'm meditating, I think, oh, I'm thinking. For a moment, there's... there's yeah, that's, that's awareness. Right. So... I am thinking as a concept, but... I retreat and I go back to the breath, and <coughs> I stop thinking, or I note the fact that I'm thinking. Right. So how do I focus on awareness? That same way. So how's it different? I didn't say it was different. There's something I'm missing here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> You're thinking about it too much, so you miss most of it. Yeah, right. 
I didn't say it was different. I don't even know who Christopher is. What if a Christopher tree? I I, what does that mean? I didn't say anything about that. You're thinking a lot about a lot of things. It gets very crowded. Then, you know, it's like your living room is so crowded that you can't find anywhere to sit. <laughs> okay, so there's that moment of awareness. That's all there is. That's the. That's where we are settling. Come home to that again and again. And if you need, follow the out breath. That's the little anchor, if you need. If you can't just follow the breath of everything, whatever's presenting itself, follow the out breath and allow everything to proceed. That's really simple. Yeah. Including thinking. It doesn't mean you keep thinking, because unless you chain the thoughts together with crazy glue, the thoughts just you know, rise and dissolve because they're just thoughts. It's not discursive thinking till you make it so. Start thinking about things. Sounds, thoughts, sights, smells, sensations. It's all just flickering. Flickering. You create the, the constellations. There are no lines between the stars, right? You create the constellations. A discursivity. So, so there I am. I'm aware for a moment now that I'm thinking. Or that I'm not thinking you. Sometimes I'm aware that I'm not thinking. What are you saying then, at that moment? Be aware of whatever is. There is awareness then, that there's no sort of awareness that there's thought, that's all. Even adding the I in is a little bit I, you know, like a little extra nut there in the cake. It's just awareness that there's a thought. With the term the turning is a device in the midst of all of this. The turning is another, is a pra different practice in a way. The turning is a way to tune up this choiceless awareness, this pure openness practice. <coughs> if you, if you, when you're thinking, you notice you're you're thinking and lost in thinking. You can, rather than following those thoughts, you turn the mind back on itself by saying, "Who or what is thinking?" experience that, or who or what is, is feeling pain, then you get to the source, the common denominator of all the six sense objects. You've been thinking all day and writing me notes, and if you practice this thing, you'll have a different experience. No, that's okay, but I'm just saying the comparing mind and, you know, all of this and that, it's very com <coughs> complex, all that. Like if you work with the breathing exercise and the out-breath, and if you really do inquire into who is experiencing, that cuts through all the discursivity, because it's very immediate. It's actually a burning question that we all have. You know, who am I and what should I be doing? And what's what around here? That's a burning question we could actually get very interested in. 
but I'm not experiencing that. You know, when you know, I get the thought I you know, who is thinking? I just get lost in the kind of frustration of who is thinking. You know, it's like nothing happens. You know, it's like that's good. Nothing is supposed to happen. So can you be with that for a moment? That's true. Nothing happens. But we keep trying to make something happen. That's false. Can we be with nothing happens ever for once, for a moment even? That'll be radically transformative. What do we expect to happen? What's going to happen? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh no, you just missed. <laughs> I think you didn't even look. <laughs> Did anything happen? <laughs> Is this why the Zen master used to kick people? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, it's also why we don't just keep talking and studying and answering questions all day and all night. Mm-hmm. You know, if you chant the Gati mantra for half an hour and then, you know, see who or what is present, you might sense a different energetic presence than just thinking about it. That's why we chant or you know, do practices. I'm not putting you down, I'm just saying, I mean, this is all of our situation. Yes? How One more question. Want, uh, Increase Kempo Rinpoche's lifetime. Excuse me? <laughs> I read in your book uh, that Kempo Rinpoche took a, a wife in order to increase his lifespan. Yeah, that's through time. I'm just telling you what he said. I was just translating his autobiography. In tantric practice, they do that sometimes. Because some monks, their energy is very sluggish, or they're not interested in life, or you know various things. So they do certain tantric practices with the consort to increase lo- health and longevity and vitality. That's all. It's not so mysterious. Maybe she took care of him pretty well, also. <laughs> you know, it's a different culture than ours. So let's end here.